Before we dive into this episode, I just want to say that while some businesses may be competitors on paper, their collaboration can do a world of good for their customers. In a way, I feel like recording Academy President Michael Green during the 2000 Grammys when he introduced Eminem and Elton John's performance of Stan, pointing out, We can't edit out the art that makes us uncomfortable. Remember, that's what our parents tried to do to Elvis, the Stones, and Beatles. Referring to the controversy around Eminem's lyrics at the time. I remember watching that live on TV and then being really bummed when Steely Dan took home the Grammy for Album of the Year. My point is, in this episode, I see strength and opportunity where some might hesitate to collaborate. Two food service companies that might not compete in territory, but perhaps a stigma exists because we are competitors in principle. I'm pretty sure that by the time we've closed the 400 mile gap between us, there will be a whole new generation running our respective companies, and we won't have to worry about it. Now, more than ever, a little shared knowledge and insight can go a long way. As family and employee-owned companies, we both support our local communities and businesses because we're just like them, and we're all in this together. Savile Food Service is a Unipro member just like Dennis. This gives us buying power, access to exclusive brands, and very competitive pricing. But more than anything, it gives us a community, a community united in an effort to keep the heart and soul of America's independent food service industry alive and well. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Dennis Knows Food podcast. I'm your host, Luke Labrie, and in this episode, we're talking with Paul Saville, president and CEO of Saville Food Service. Founded in 1932, Saville Food Service is a family-owned company that believes in community and culture, people, and a positive outlook. A positive outlook is a challenging thing to hold on to right now, given the situation that the food and hospitality industry is currently facing. An industry with many, many more moving parts and employees than the general public might realize. I talked with Paul about how he's leveraging his team and a commitment to community to meet today's and future challenges head on. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it, Luke. Absolutely. You know, before we dive in, I want to get a little bit of uh, background about your uh, your history and history in food service. Okay. Um, I've uh, been in the industry. I'm a lawyer. I, I came into the business. It's a family business. I practiced law for three years and uh, joined the business in 1983. So I've been around a long time. Um, I took over as president of Savile Food Service in 1999. So again, I've been doing that for a long time, and uh, now I'm CEO and president. And we have two companies. We have a food service distribution company, Savile Food Service, and we have a processing entity, Delhi Brands of America. Our heritage is in Delhi processing and distribution. Uh, So my brother, Jeff, uh, runs the Delhi Brands of America operation, and um, I'm located at the distribution operation, Savile Food Service. Now, uh, food service and being the family business, is that something that you always 
thought you'd go into or was there a point in time when you said, gee, dad, I, I really want to be a lawyer. You know, I don't want to go into food because you, you went to law school and were practicing for a while. Yeah. So just the opposite. I never wanted to be in the business. Um, you know, when I was a kid, if I was punished, they'd uh, take me to work. And uh, and it was a very physical thing. And I'm, I was just a you know redhead, freckle faced little kid, you know, not very physical, didn't really like that hard work. And um, so uh, I always wanted to be Perry Mason. I uh, watched that as I grew up and always wanted to go to law school, and I did that and practiced law for three years. Um, I, I enjoyed the practice, but I uh, was going to leave the firm I was with, and there was an opportunity in the business to buy another company. And then I talked to my father about coming in, and he uh, moved me over to Washington, D.C. We had a distribution operation there, and uh, he had a brother running that. And, kind of wanted me to go over there and try to help him. And uh, then a couple of years later, uh, we decided to merge the distribution operations from Baltimore, Washington, in between the two cities. Uh, so there was a role for me and uh, my stock rose dramatically because I worked in DC. I then went to work in Baltimore, learned that operation. So when we came here in Elkridge, Maryland, you know, I was familiar with both workforces, the systems, uh, kind of knew wh what we wanted to do. And uh, so that was very good for me. That was 1988. Um, so 11 years later, after a lot of family things uh, got unwound, um, I uh, ended up uh, uh, running the company. I think when we moved to Elkridge in 1988, we had 531 items in stock. Uh, now we have about 7,500 items in stock, plus another 20,000 that we can get overnight uh, from DOT and and other uh, sources. So, um, so that's going in. And so is Deli Brands. Deli Brands is a significant player, national player in, in meat processing and sells a lot of distributors as well as uh, grocery store chains across the country. I was reading the other day that the food industry, so restaurants and food retail, equates to about $1.8 trillion worth of food and food products sold in the U.S. every year. And when you bring that to the restaurant side, those restaurants are then taking and preparing that food and selling it to the tune of about $750 billion. And as we approach 2021, that number gets closer to $900 billion. A lot of people don't realize when they sit down at a restaurant how much there is behind the scenes of this industry. What don't people realize about food service? There's so many misperceptions. Most people think that restaurants get their food from the grocery store. Uh, they don't understand that uh, the, the restaurant quality food is a little different. Um, the, 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 uh, the volumes are less than a grocery store. So they need a consolidator of their goods in order to efficiently distribute the product to them. Um, so um, most people don't even know what a food service distributor is. Uh, and uh, I think that the pandemic has really brought to light, number one, the appreciation of restaurants as your main source of entertainment that's no longer necessarily there. And number two, that there are others involved in the supply chain. And there are hundreds of thousands of employees dependent on the hospitality industry and the industry at large. So I think there is an appreciation of, 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 the, of the segment like never before. Unfortunately, though, um, I think that the government and the Congress needs to realize that 
in order for that industry to survive, there needs to be another infusion of monies because with the economies of scale of restaurants uh, being dependent on carryout, delivery, outdoor dining, and limited indoor capacity, there's no way they can survive. The independent restaurateur cannot survive under these circumstances without some help. They did get some help early on, but that help really wasn't needed then. Uh, it would force them to bring back employees before they were ready really to use them. And, and that money is now gone. Uh, now that their volume's a little better and some have pivoted successfully into delivery, yeah, their, their business is better, but very few are even at 50% of where they were before the pandemic. And with the rents being what they are, there's no way they can survive. Yeah, and we're not talking about a few people. We're talking around 16 million people or close to 10% of the employable workforce is in food service. And I, and I don't know if that counts guys like us, food distributors, and also the manufacturers. Now, you know, it's interesting because we're in both the two areas of the supply chain, the manufacturing side and, and the distribution side. So um, when the pandemic uh, began, uh, the distri our distribution operation lost 65% of its business. Uh, our manufacturing division lost 70% of its, uh, its business. But they bounced right back because once retail got their legs under them and the supply chain got corrected, there was plenty of volume there and they were getting the volume that used to be in the restaurants. So they bounced right back. But distribution, it's been a slow slog of, of progress. Um, and, and now I, I think it's plateaued. And now in the fall, it's going to go the other way. So we're really going to be challenged to continue on. And and and, distrib and you know, what other people don't understand, I, I say this all the time, is we are the roll-up of 1,400 restaurants. So whatever nightmare that they're experiencing, we're experiencing it 1,400 times over. And so uh, the supply chain will fall uh, with the independent restaurants. You know, unless there's some diversity, you know, and for my company where we sell restaurants and we sell independent restaurants, we don't sell the Wendy's of the world and the Outback Steakhouse of the world. We sell the independent restaurant tour and we don't sell prisons or school systems. We don't do bid work with those. It's just independent restaurants. So we're pretty much the roll up of them. We've got these these challenges ahead of us, the COVID being a big one. Um, but I think, as you said, the roll up of 1400 businesses, we have to partner with these businesses to help them survive. We have to get creative, they have to get creative, whether it's the transition to take out or inventorying the right products. I know, for example, at Dennis, uh, we celebrate when we get all the gloves we ordered coming in because it's, it's an in-demand item and it's, it's hard, you know, to get that product. So I thought we were the only ones. <laughs> how do you think we're going to overcome some of these challenges and how can we come together as an industry? Yeah, I think um, so. There's a lot of factors there, some of some of which we've been pretty good at handling. Number one, uh, when this started, uh, we had an overabundance of perishable inventory. So what do you do? I mean, you've got no business. You, you could put it in the freezer, but everybody's freezer is pretty full. And if once it hits the freezer, it's worth a lot less. And when we come out of this, nobody's going to want it. So um, so what we did was we started giving away the food. Um, 
So we went into the communities that needed it the most. Uh, we partnered with a restaurant, multi-unit independent family business, but they had you know, 15 restaurants. And so they had a lot of unemployed workers um, and they were, they were trying to help them uh, because they had to lay them off. So we started going into the city of Baltimore and feeding workers. We had bags, first we had bags of food and we were able to box it up. Then we got a, you know, we got a, made a little assembly line and got a tape machine so we could box it up more professionally. And we did this for seven straight weeks at the very beginning. Um, and really made a difference, I think, for the community. People really appreciated it. Uh, the, the, the unemployed restaurant workers in Baltimore had a little Facebook group, and they were trying to help each other get jobs. But we got a lot of thank yous and gratitude from them, you know, for helping them. And then any, and we invited any unemployed restaurant worker who was working for a customer of ours into our warehouse to pick up. So we had people coming to our warehouse and picking up perishables. Uh, all the people that we laid off, they could come in every Friday and get food for their family for the next week. So, so we did help out in the short run of, of the food needs. And then what that turned into was community feeding opportunities. Um, actually, uh, we were able uh, to um, uh, help Johns Hopkins University got had a grant to feed people and we partnered with them and we were their logistics arm. So we assembled boxes with food and we were able to distribute it to 70 some locations around the city, uh, churches, schools, things like that, community centers uh, to help there. But that doesn't help the restaurant, that just helps the, you know, the people eat. And, and then as the restaurants were ready to open up, we had to come up with an idea because most other people don't know is that we finance the restaurants. Um, we are an interest-free lender and people buy from us sometimes because we we lend them the product and then they pay us when they can. And that's kind of what the situation was, is that all that March money uh, that they didn't, they didn't pay us. Um, so uh, when they opened back up, we had to uh, negotiate a way for them to open back up, still have credit terms, but how are they going to pay back the March money? Or are they going to pay current and then pay back the old money uh, over time? And then that's, that's how that went. And we've done a pretty good job, I think. And the customers understand and we understand. We, we, we both need to work together because you know, we don't have a, a pipeline of money. We don't have cash laying around. Uh, we, you know, so, um, so that's been interesting. So inventory side, receivable side uh, are, are really most of our assets. That's our collateral for our loans and that's our assets. So we've had to manage that carefully. We've come out of a lot of it. We still have some inventory we don't want to have and we still have receivables that we certainly don't want to have. But that is really a main focus of, of the restaurant. How are they going to survive? They're going to need some, some play with some cash um, they're going to need to, to, to compromise a little bit on inventory because supply chains are disrupted. So you, you mentioned gloves. I mean, there's probably 15 other items that are still disrupted. And uh, so it, it's been in interesting. And I think, you know, we've offered them uh, startup kits, you know, the stickers on the floor for distancing, the sanitizer, the gloves, things like that to kind of say, hey, we didn't use to sell this stuff, so now we do. But here, take a box, start yourself up, and then you can buy it from us if you'd like. So, and it's not free. You're not sitting on all this cash, like you said, where you can just go do these. You, 
you're making a goodwill investment. And do you think, just looking at it from uh, an unbiased point of view, that that is going to come back in the months and years to benefit your business? We believe so. We strongly believe so. But, you know, there, there are different kinds of customers. You know, some customers, uh, you know, you, you need to be a penny cheaper on cheese. And, and uh, others, you know, have a broader perspective of what makes success. It's not just being cheaper on cheese. It's, it's about having a value that people are going to want to go to your restaurant and, and order. And, you know, otherwise they'd all go to the cheapest restaurant, right? So, um, so, so there's a little of that. I, I believe um, that we have, we have stood up in this and we've got a lot of good publicity. My son actually uh, yesterday was named um, uh, in the Baltimore Business Journal, uh, the 40 under 40, um, the leaders up tomorrow, 40 people were announced as the 40 under 40 club and, and he was named. And a lot of what I think he was recognized for is his efforts in the community. Uh, that he still continues to do. And, and Savile Food Service has always been very community driven. We, we support um, many charities. Some of them are co our customer charities, but some of our own Children's Cancer Foundation, Elijah Cummings Youth Program, uh, uh, the Meals on Wheels, uh, Maryland Food Bank. I mean, I can go on and on of things we do. So it's, it's, it's a continuum of what we've always believed in and what my wife and I have always been involved in the community and our business has always been involved as well. And I think that that's just what we should do. It's the right thing to do because uh, we, we serve our community and we're dependent on our community uh, to, to buy from us and, and to, to support us as well. It's one, it's one more way to get the name out there in the business in a, in a positive light, especially during such a trying time, even if it requires you to, to give up a little on the front end, the, the dividends in the end make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're a family business just like they are. We've been around 88 years, and I think that that's something, yeah, I, I don't appreciate that sometimes, but sometimes I sit back and I think, oh my gosh, you know, we've really done something special. Uh, so 88 years is a long time, third, you know, my son's fourth generation. Uh, and a lot of these family businesses, they're multi-generational just like us. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the people and the family behind the scenes. How have you had to lean on your people um, during this and, and in the past to, to really keep things going in the right direction? Well, I, I'm very blessed to have great people. And I think a lot of the people that work for us used to work at the bigger boy companies and and uh, really appreciate the family business atmosphere we have. I mean, we're not a little company, but, but we're not huge. And everybody has a name here and everybody's recognized for what they do. And I think people here at Savile work harder maybe than they do for the bigger companies, um, but they make they have a bigger impact also. So each individual can have a, a large share of what what occurs here, and, and we are very open about our information. Uh, we share just about everything with our people. I think they appreciate that, and I I think I have an obligation to do that because everybody uh, everybody's in this together. So uh, we've we've engendered that kind of culture for many years, and I think. Uh, our people are very motivated to make sure that number one, they have a job and number two, they have a place that they call home that they can work on and enjoy and, and achieve. And uh, so during the pandemic, they have been amazing. We, 
we've sold customers that I never thought in a million years we would sell it, uh, uh, homeowners associations. Who would think that we would be selling homeowners associations? And during the beginning, I mean, we were taking groceries to large neighborhoods and they were picking it up off their truck because they didn't want to go into the grocery store. They were scared and they couldn't get a lot of the things we had, meats and chicken and you know, sanitizer and things like that. So toilet paper, we had toilet paper. So we sold it to them. So that was really amazing. And we knew it wouldn't last very long, but it did. And, and it was, it was the brainchild of one of our great salespeople who lived in a community that had those needs and said, Hey, we can bring the truck there. And so we, we ended up with, I think, 12 homeowner associations that we were taking our truck out to. That was really amazing. And then, you know, we've been around the community a long, long time and we didn't, we never sold grocery stores. And, and I, I had a lot of friends that owned grocery stores not a lot of those independent grocery stores left, but the ones that were, I knew them. So I called them up. I said, I know you're having issues getting stuff and we got lots of stuff. How about we sell you. And they were more than willing. And, you know, I was here, I, I got a call on Saturday morning from the, from the owner of a 15 store grocery chain and they were out of butter. So I came in here, we got a couple, I got a warehouse guy to bring down some loads of butter and they're selling one pound blocks of butter instead of sticks down there. You know, so it's really, so again, um, we, we, and, and it was funny because that particular supermarket, our salesman had been into that supermarket owner's place the day before because he just thought, you know, I have no restaurants to sell. Let me see if they need some stuff. Well, they didn't know him from Adam. The, the owner happened to call me back, returning my call from three days before. It just so happened that he was an opportunist and he went in there. So he went from doing $100,000 a week in sales to zero to $100,000 of sales the following week. It was unbelievable because he saw he sold all hotels in DC. All the hotels shut down. He had absolutely no business. And then the next week he had $100,000 back in a different way. It was amazing. And just one guy, happenstance, working hard, trying to figure it out. Um, so it's kind of really proud of him. And that one example, right? that idea percolated out to your other DSRs, right? And they took advantage of similar circumstances and they planted that seed and everybody started. One, one creative idea can, can do a world of good. Really did. And we, we opened our warehouse to the public, so we do curbside pickup. It doesn't do a lot, but at the very beginning, we had some pretty good business. Now, you know, they can go back to the grocery store or to Costco. Um, we'll keep it open. I think it's worthwhile. But, you know, it, it was something, again, and I, it was really my IT guy. Uh, we talked about, so the pandemic uh, shutdown was on a Monday, March 16th. We talked about this on Thursday. Uh, on Monday, we were up and running with a cool website with all the products, pictures. I mean, in three days, we got this thing up and running and, and functional. And the next week, that week, we did $10,000 in business. Boom. It was really, that, again, another proud moment for me. Doing and you'll have that infrastructure in place should you uh, dial that up again for whatever reason. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I want to connect. Uh, one of your earlier thoughts and this idea of, you know, leveraging people, 
you're big into uh, getting involved in your community. Does that translate through to the rest of the company and that same feeling? Yeah, so we, we've been doing this for years. So we do community activities with our employees all the time. Playworks is a nonprofit that goes into inner city elementary schools and uh, does supervised play periods. So we we have our CFO on the board. We've had activities, kickball activities with our employees. Um, so we do, we've done that. We've done food bank, uh, volunteering, things like that. So yeah, and uh, most, if not all of my executives are on the board of some nonprofit. I think for 18 straight years, we've had um, a, a golf tournament supporting the Children's Cancer Foundation. We've been on the board. We had our marketing person on the board. So we do those things. Do you think that that um, being part of the community makes them better at what they do and strengthens the company overall in terms of having more empathy, perhaps, than your competitors might? Right. So we teach um, here um, oncological humility. <laughs> it's a concept in a book called Conscious Business that we've adopted. And so, um, you know, uh, the pandemic has been the ultimate humbling experience. Uh, but we've already learned humility. Um, you know, we, we've taken ego out of the workplace. And we, uh, so I think we do appreciate uh, where we are and what we do. But this certainly is another opportunity to say, hey, we're the lucky ones here. Um, we, you know, the, the food distribution to restaurants, has, we've kind of been the loser in the pandemic. Uh, but we also talk about um, victimhood a lot. And uh, instead of being a victim, we don't have control over all of our circumstances. We only have control over how we deal with those circumstances. So we need to be a player, you know, not a victim. Uh, so again, most of our people have been trained in that already, so they were ready to go. Um, so it's both before, during, and after we come out this and say, hey, you know, these concepts really work. Uh, this is what we did and be proud of ourselves for, you know, handling it. And I know, I know this is not easy. I mean, most everyone here took a pay cut. Um, most people have been restored, but not everyone. Um, but they've done it just with a lot of thankfulness and gratitude that they're still working where others haven't. And they know we have a long way to go. We're only, we're only a little more than halfway through this, I think. So uh, we now we're working on resilience. <laughs> you know, how do you be resilient? How do you keep your head high? How do you, you know, keep being optimistic? You know, because there, there's not a lot of optimism. So again, we've done a pretty good job. Um, we talk every week. We have a town hall meeting. I do a blog. We we do, we do a lot of, we lot we do a lot of good things here. What needs to happen in the industry at large, from distribution to the mom and pop owners, for there to be some positive outlook and maybe even growth in 2021? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, we we all uh, elect public officials to represent us in Congress and locally. And we need to get the word out about our industry. I mean, I know the National Restaurant Association is. Uh, I know the International Food Distributor Association is. We need to get behind those organizations. And we really need an infusion of monies. There's, again, we don't have control over circumstances. We're going to be living with this. There's nothing that's going to get more people into our restaurants uh, because we have 
government-imposed obstacles, right? So uh, we are going to need some more money. So uh, if you're not involved, you need to be involved. And any one person can make a difference. It doesn't, it, if you don't think you can make a difference, you're wrong. Because I can, I can tell you stories upon stories about how one person has made a difference in, in so many circumstances, whether it's my home life or my work life. Um, it's, it's been a string of those kinds of things. So get involved, get involved in your associations. They are your advocates, support them and be, and you have personal experience. So you can bring it home to people. You can tell your story. So that's number one. Number two, uh, yes, we need to pivot. So restaurants have pivoted to carry out and delivery. But again, you know, uh, the delivery services has taken, took advantage of the restaurants and we need to fight back and the restaurants need to say, hey, you, you know, we're making this amount of money and we're doing all the work. You're, yes, you're delivering and helping us market, but, you know, come on down with your percentage and be reasonable so that we can take home some money. Um, and then we also need to be so vigilant with our people and ourselves to stay healthy because uh, one person can ruin it for all. So, you know, so being socially responsible in your home at, at home and also at work to keep ourselves safe and healthy so that it doesn't ruin our opportunity to at least go out there in, in the workplace. Um, operationally, you're a little bit further south than we are up in Maine. And I know it's in the back of everyone's minds right now that, that uh, Game of Thrones, right? Winter is coming. A lot of uh, independent restaurant owners are um, living by the outdoor dining opportunity that they have right now, but that's not gonna last forever. Any thoughts on, on, on that? So a couple of things. One is the reality is that some people um, are going to be uncomfortable going into a restaurant. So marketing uh, ourselves as a safe haven uh, versus uh, risk uh, is, is really going to be important because we really need indoor dining. And then we need to tell our government people, look, we understand that we need to be a safe place. We, we've pra practiced safety habits and good health habits all along in our restaurants. Now, yes, we've had to up our game quite a bit, and the social distancing within our restaurant is not economically beneficial to us uh, from a volume standpoint, but in order to survive, we've got to do some things and we're gonna do that. So if we do all those things, we need to market ourselves as a, as a place to go for entertainment. And, and bars, and uh, maybe people will, not like this, but bars are, are, are havens for socialization. And when you drink, you lose your inhibitions and you forget you have a virus that's invisible right in front of you. Um, so yes, I, need, I think you need to restrict uh, the bar socialization, but, but the in-house dining, that's not gonna get you sick. If, you the, if you're responsible and the restaurant is doing what I know they do, you're going to be just fine. So I think we need to market ourselves as indoor dining is okay. Yeah. And now CDC came out with something this week that was damaging and irresponsible in my opinion. Um, it was, you know, oh, people that go indoor dining, they are more prone to, to getting the virus. It, well, they're more prone because they're more social and they're doing other things 
It's not in the restaurant that they're getting the virus. They were getting it somewhere else and maybe bringing it with them. So I just, that was really upsetting to me. I think that was damaging and irresponsible. In a world where people browse through headlines with their thumbs, a lack of con uh, proper context can be very damaging to a struggling industry like that. I, I agree. It, just as soon as you start to get comfortable, there's a, a re-scare. And then it's, I think, as you said, we're only about halfway through this and we have to kind of maintain that positive outlook. Right. And I think we need to call each other out in a respectful way. I mean, yeah. come on, if you're going to be irresponsible, you're hurting everybody. So responsibility, practicality, and positivity for the next few months and, and just be vigilant. Yep. Yep. Yes. <clears throat> I've seen really good practice. Um, I've seen not so good practice, too. I, I, I go pretty much carry out five days a week to restaurants um, or, um, so, or, or eat, do the social distancing dining, which is my wife has very strict parameters for that. Um, and I, I've. I've experienced a little differences amongst all, but mostly in the good to great, right? Not in the good to bad. Uh, so uh, everybody can be better at their game. And, and again, you're, you're right. In order for them to get through the winter, they're going to have to be at the best that they can be. Um, uh, and then, you know, it has to do with also you know, with the carryout, you know, have the best um, presentation, have keep that food hot. Uh, understand how to cook products that's not going to get soggy in the box. You know, I've seen, you know, the bread get soggy, the fries get cold, you know, things like you got to get really good at what you do because the impression you, I, I read an article about rating restaurants in delivery mode, right? So now you, you're, you're grading them from home. And uh, so one bad, one bad review. You're, you're, that's it you have to meet the perception that your diners expect with your takeout packaging. If you're a, a nice steakhouse, you're not gonna serve that steak on a paper plate. Your takeout packaging, when you get it, you should feel um, like, yeah, this is what I wanted from this restaurant. Oh, so I kinda, I get a kick out of it because there's so many different types of packaging and um, and and I actually, that would be a good blog is, uh, you know, just the packaging, or, yes. this is great, this is bad, here's a picture of a good one, here's a picture of a bad one, that'd be a lot of fun, but I can't do that because there'll be some bad ones, right? It's like, you know, we can't go to a restaurant that's a customer and criticize them or critique them, they, they don't like that, right? So you can't do it, but, but um, I've seen some wonderful packaging that keeps, uh, we, my wife and I, at the very beginning, we decided to just take a drive and we, for carryout, and we drove 40 minutes to a restaurant that's very good, very high end. And I, I said, it's probably gonna be cold when we get home, but it wasn't. What they did, they knew where we lived. He knew, they knew who we were. So they knew where we lived, they knew we drove a long way. So not only did they put it in the boxes and really good boxes, but then they put saran wrap around it. And when we got home, it was really hot and it was delicious. Um, but others don't do that. So, yes, I, I think um, I've seen some great things and I've learned a lot about non-foods. I'm not a, I'm a lawyer. I'm really not a food guy. <laughs> um, so, but I've learned a lot about packaging and I bring them back. I take pictures. I show it to our, our non-foods buyer to, hey, we have this, we have that. So they're also very difficult to get some of the packaging uh, into the containers. 
that's one that's one group that's got an opportunity right now are the, are the packaging yeah folks. they're the winner they're winners i want to wrap up with one uh one more question for you what's something that in the food service world you're looking forward to in 2021 well i'm i'm looking forward to number one the ability for us to travel and for others to travel as well um so that the hospitality industry and tourism as a whole has just gotten beaten up. Um, and, and, you know, when there is tourism, that helps the restaurant trade. When there are events at conventions, that helps the restaurant trade. We've lost all that business. I, you know, we are right outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, if, if, if you've been to Washington, D.C. in the last couple of years, it was a boom town. I mean, the place is just crazy and the culinary was getting to a very high level and now it's like a desert between the pandemic and the social unrest i'm it, it is it's devastating so the hotels are dying and and the conventions are nil um so i'm really looking forward to that you know both me traveling and also people traveling here mm, that's a great point very good point um, I haven't done any traveling. Normally, I'd be on the road a couple times a year, and uh, you know, conventions. That's 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 thousands and thousands of people in major cities every year. That is just not there now. And sporting events, sporting events without people. I mean, you know, all the bar restaurants that surround these stadiums, they are they're dead. I mean, I don't know how they survive. I it's just it's terrible and. Uh, and, and just the vibe of the community, you see what's happening in the urban settings, you know, feeling good about your city and feeling good about your team. All those are all very positive things. And you don't have that. You don't have that diversion. You don't have that feel good. I mean, it's nice the NFL's back, but you can't go to the game. You can't hang out and watch the game. It hurts, you know, psychologically, it has an impact. Paul, it's been a pleasure. Any closing words? Thank you very much for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. And, um, keep doing what you're doing. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I'll, uh, I'll shoot you an email when this goes. Well, that's going to do it for us and episode 60 of the Dennis Knows Food podcast. As always, I'm your host, Luke Labrie. I'd like to thank Paul Savile for joining me on the podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Savile Food Service, you can visit their website. I've provided links in the accompanying blog for this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and you're not yet a subscriber, make sure to hit that old subscribe button. You can find Dennis Knows Food on your favorite podcasting platform. And be sure to tell a friend, because as you know, we're putting the foodie back in food service. For more food service products, information, news, and resources, be sure to visit us online at www.dennisexpress.com. <laughs>